0: Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. 2020 has been the year of things happening that are completely out of your control. There's one thing you can control, and that's shaving. Our sponsors of Manscaped are here to remind you to do so. Manscaped is here to provide you with the best tools for your grooming experience. Chaz, have you had any funny manscaping experiences?
1: Okay, so here you go, Derek Riley. I used to only ever say shave your face right don't yeah, yeah. shave anything but your face because it is totally brilliant to shave your face before you razor shave with Manscaped but I've realized women don't like chest hair either and so I've gone south I have gone to the chest and it's totally easy and I mean do you shave your chest?
0: I you do. I think men who shave the chest or a half men chest
1: I don't shave all of it. I just shave the top part that comes up to my neck. So it's like an extension of my face down, right? I leave the chest, I suppose. I misspoke, but I shave the top third, the neck portion of my chest.
0: That's ghastly. Yeah, and you get that thing where you get a little regrowth, and you see the regrowth on man, and you go, God, you actually shave the hair on your uh, your chest and your neck. I mean, there. I ain't going go razor
1: down there, so I'm just, I'm just cutting the weird fluff that grows up over my v-neck. That's it.
0: Oh yes, fair enough. You can probably just trim that with scissors. It's probably a more effective experience. Using Are you kidding covers.
1: me? The manscaped tool makes it like I don't even have to think about it. I just do it in seconds and I'm gold.
0: <laughs> well, in fact, listeners to the show will get 20% off and free shopping shipping with the code uh dirtywater at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. And use the code Dirty Water. Please use Dirty Water because this whole thing would be pointless unless you use Dirty Water. So if you're going to do it, use Dirty Water, please. Uh, it's time to grab 2020 by the horns and shave. Take your grooming game to the next level. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at the game this year, but you can still be in on the action of bet online. Chaz, have
1: you been betting? I haven't been betting yet, but that's only because it's so frustrating to bet here. Where I am so happy for easy online betting, because I've always got an instinct that's always wrong. What would you be laying your money on? Oh, right now, I'd go hard on Joe Biden, to be honest. Do they bet politics or no?
0: I don't know. I think so, yeah. You can bet Biden. I think he's a, uh, probably a one and a half to one, semi-favorite.
1: I mean, I guess I wouldn't bet him. but I'd bet uh, on
0: Joe Biden fucking dying, dying in, uh, in the Oval Office.
1: I'd bet. Uh, I'd bet. I mean, yeah. Trump feels to me like he's he's cooked. This is not going to be a good ad talking about how Trump is cooked. <laughs> but how good is Kamala Harris? She's beautiful. I mean, the, the, except now she's offline. She's been derailed by the COVID.
0: Oh, I thought oh, an assistant got uh, got COVID. Huh?
1: Yeah, but they're really taking her offline purposefully to show how much more responsible they are. Uh, how much she cares? Yep.
0: And how much better she looks in Timberland boots than uh, Melania Trump, huh? I mean, my goodness. <laughs> okay, so from game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there is always the online casino as well. It never closes. You can just spend all your money, lose, lose everything you got, lose your wife's money, lose everyone's money. Okay, so head to BetOnline.ag to get today. AG, I guess, is Antigua. Isn't that amazing? Sweet. That's Isn't where I want not, to be betting. Sure, I want to go to Antigua. So head to betonline.ag today. Uh, betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag for Antigua and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sports book experts. I'm Derek Riley. i with Charlie Smith and welcome to Dirty Water, where we rage against the wicked follies of the world, but still with that air of overflowing gaiety. Those guest was identified in 2014 as the best surf reporter in the world. His shafts and arrows fly wildly through the pro-surfing atmosphere, and he will crumble bones and drink blood in the pursuit of a story. He's the author of the definitive biography, MP, The Life of Michael Peterson, and My Brother's Keeper, The Official Bra Boy Story, among many others. He is a former editor of Tracks magazine, was the chief chief tour reporter for Surfer magazine before its sudden and deserved death earlier this year, and he's the new owner, along with photographer John Frank of Surfing World magazine. Last year, our guest energised Australian surf to such a level, a Norwegian company thrilled at the idea of milking Australian waters for its liquid gold, fled in tears. Our guest, Mr. Sean Doherty. How are you, Sean Oak? Morning, Decker. How are you going? Good. How's, uh, how's life in Jane, Jack, that beautiful little corner of Victoria? Today,
2: actually pretty good. We've, uh, we've had a pretty chronic winter in the spring for surf, but uh, we kicked kicked in yesterday. We had a great afternoon yesterday, we Had a bluebird afternoon at Winky. Um, good morning this morning, sun's out. It's actually, it's probably 30 today. So it just feels like winter's cleared, you know. It's just been a long winter down here. So,
0: so, so Victoria had has had, pretty. I think, the most punitive um, COVID lockdown laws in the world. How did it, I know it was gnarly in Melbourne, what was it like down in uh, Juck?
2: Uh, mate, you pretty much didn't even know it was happening. You know, that, the Ring of Steel was around Melbourne, um, which effectively was actually pretty good for us because it kept all, all the Melbourne crew out. Um, but it was, yeah, I don't know. It just made it a bleak, long winter. You know, you had to walk around with face masks. We're still in face masks now. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, but it's, but like the last week, you feel that the whole thing's tweaked and it's changed and there's crew everywhere and, and there's waves and it's, it kind of feels like life's returned to normal.
0: How do, you, how, do you, how do you feel about like wearing face masks? I mean, we don't, we don't wear them in Bondi, but I went to the eye hospital yesterday and I had to wear an eye mask for about six hours. I mean, yeah, a face mask, and an eye mask. I had an eye mask as well, a patch. But a face mask, fuck, it's a wild sensation. Oh, it's horrible. It's like seriously. But it, it, it's amazing what you get conditioned to.
2: And it's like it's just this huge social experiment. Like you've seen all the, all the craziness that's erupted, like all the Facebook craziness and fucking all that shit that's erupted in Melbourne over this and because it's like a test case it was like the it was the heaviest lockdown in the world Like you don't know what's happening in china they're welding people into <laughs> unit blocks it didn't quite go to that level here but you know it was it was a bit of a test case for western society you know how far you could you could get a population to behave themselves <laughs> it's pretty bad um,
0: can you believe, i can't believe how many face masks see just strewn on the road and in garbage cans and on the beach and it's horrible,
2: yeah. But it wasn't, yeah. It, like, man, if that's a small, small price to pay, you look at all the carnage that's going on everywhere else. If that, that's what it's going to take. mate, off. I'll, I'll put one of those
0: things on and, and just walk around. Oh yeah, but we're a velvet jumpsuit all day in summer. If, uh, <laughs> if you a damn thing. <laughs> hey, so, Sean, sure, no, while, while the rest of the world uh, flees print, and I fled print six years ago, um, seeing the writing on the wall, you just bought in. Why did you buy surfing world? Well? Oh. Mate, the way we
2: reason it is: if we're mad enough to buy it, we're probably also mad enough to make it work. Um, I think it, it kind of came to a point where we, the thing was going to go. Like, if we didn't jump in and take it, it was probably just going to fold. Uh, I think that was the reality of it, and that didn't really, yeah, it sit un- sat uncomfortably with me to watch it go. Like, and then in and in the interim, we've had Surfer go as well, so. Um initially it was a sense of duty. It's like, fuck me, we've spent all our lives doing this stuff and and keeping it going. And and I know you you've gleefully kind of fled the chicken coop and um and gone to the other side, but but you know, I mean, I'm I'm a bit more of a nostalgist. I can I'm happy to hang on to it. And and I think what we realized is once that sense of duty thing kind of we got over that and it actually looked presented like an opportunity to. I think just in terms of what's happening with surfing and kind of how people see surfing and and just the you know I think just the look for something different and the the thing is now like a magazine is something different. It's actually an oddity. It's whereas yeah, once oddity. it's actually it's actually enough times past where online's had so much of everything for so long now that a mag is actually like a curiosity and, and people are picking it up as if it just fell from space. So, which, which is fucking great, you know, and it's allowing us to do all the stuff that we've kind of always wanted to do. And the fact we're our own bosses now is, is, is kind of great. So it's just that whole publishing model that you and I have been, we've spun our wheels in for so many years is just gone. And like, that's kind of fucking liberating. So um how does
0: the model work now? Because, you know, I obviously did the – sum when I was talking to Kim Sundell, the previous owner of Surfing World, whom, whom I'd, I guess he bought it off, um, I was doing the sums in my head going, well, you're probably going to get 20 grand max in advertising. How does, how does it work? So how does it work? Um, well,
2: we'll have our heads above water for the first year. No worries. Um, I think there's a lot – like we've had a bunch of advertisers come on and show interest. I think there was a bunch kind of circling around it, waiting to see what it turned into. Um, and we'll see how that goes in the next couple of months. But, you know, subs, we just did a shit ton of subs. Um, and, like, I think there's just, you know, the, the way we pitched it, we wanted, like I said, there's no business model in it. Like, clearly, no business model is probably the best model to have. And, and like, I've got day jobs, you know, Frank's off doing Frank stuff. Um, so, it kind of works in that in that we 've got realistic expectations for it um, it 's not like the old days where it was it was just bloodthirsty capitalist publishing it's it 's done like you 're in the surfing board office now it 's like my fucking back room at home um, so there 's no costs. We can do what we want um, we can free it up a little bit and and just try and um, yeah, run it more like a social enterprise is kind of what we thought, and and just see what that does. So I don't know. You can re-Interview me in, in twelve months, and we'll <laughs> and
0: we'll do a post mortem. Well, Chaz, just um, jumped in all the way from San Diego, California. Charlie Smith. <laughs> we'll just keep talking, Sean, until um, Chaz on trace. We might need our IT expert James to um, click Chaz in. Come on, Chaz. Come on, my brother.
2: You've got it, mate. Off mute.
0: Commute. come on come on son anyway sure no. um well uh jazz uh, comes on uh you, you're talking about stuff you couldn't do before you got surfing well what couldn't you do that you can do now in surfing? World? um you can already what we've done in this first one is we've kind of like
2: i figured the surf bubble too is so claustrophobic and it's such a stuffy little fucking planet and if you sat there and just did the same surf mag that you and i've done for like for 20 years, it's not going to work today because there's no that whole paradigm is, is kind of shifted. So we, we thought what we'd do is is broaden it out, um, throw a heap more kind of social and environmental stuff in it, put a, a bit of political stuff in it, and kind of try and you know tap into the yeah. And it's we're nowhere near it, but the the goal is to to position it a little like early day tracks and you know, early 70s tracks. Rolling Stone at that time, where you could actually comment on society. At the same point, um, so that's that's the goal. Broaden it out like that. You'd never get away with that when we were back in, you know, owned by publishing houses and owned by by bloodthirsty Englishmen. <laughs> <laughs> but mate, we can do whatever the fuck we want now. It's our, our mag, so it's it's great in that regard.
0: So what was, what was the uh, negotiation process like with? Uh... With Kim who he owned Coastal Watch as well and, and sold that to Surfline. And yep. when you're divesting himself of print, describe the uh, the machinations of your uh, negotiations. Oh, there really
2: was none. Kim Kim's off he's because he's up on the farm at Creso right now. Um, and he's like in semi-retirement, so he's just loving life. He's it's like every day's burning man up there for him right sure. now. He's driving the tractor into swamps and 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 not picking up phone calls. But it's great. It's like Kim's still a, got a chunk of the mag so and he's you know he's one of those guys that um like we've had him as a boss for at surfing world for i don't know a decade and he's a bit of gold and he his spirit is the right spirit for a a publisher of this because he he's like he's off like he's and and he it's all about freedom with him and um and so in terms of buying it, it was essentially five magic beans. We, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of cash changing hands, Derek, but um, it's done. And Kim's still in as a part owner, uh, but Frank and I have kind of got licence to, to take it where it needs to go.
0: And you had, a, um, you had a wonderful, and probably still do have a wonderful relationship with Kim, where he, uh, he sent you and um, Blako and himself and someone else uh, to, the, to the surf ranch 2017 via Las Vegas, huh?
2: Well, that was the last time you, me, and Chaz were all in the same postcode.
0: Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. That was a, that was a glorious day. In the Jacuzzi Quite of fun. Truth. That, that's the last time we were together in the, the Jacuzzi of Lamour. It it's probably the first time that I've ever been hung over and you haven't been hungover.
2: I Actually, I was thinking about this. You know, your strategy for that day was the perfect strategy, was to go out the night before, get absolutely munted. Whereas the rest of us all t- went to bed at 7 o'clock and we-, we could take this fucking really seriously and-, and we all rocked up with so much anxiety about fucking surfing it and you rocked up. You hadn't slept and just stunk of whiskey and, and didn't give a fuck and it probably actually worked for you. you-
0: then when I couldn't, uh, I got trapped in my wetsuit and I couldn't get it over my body. <laughs> that person had to come and uh, rescue me because while I was waiting in the spa, because it was so warm the lovely jacuzzi that I'd pull my wetsuit down. And then when I tried to pull it up, something the sleeve had gone through the fucking like, headpiece or something. And when I was about to start, it's about to hit my wife's Go fuck, Dave! I can't get my wetsuit on. <laughs> I was a bit disoriented, a bit discombobulated that day. I have to admit. Oh mate, the, that speaking of social experiments, that
2: day at the mall was the best, wasn't it? The best ever. Oh, just it was watching, incredible! Throwing all of us clowns into that pool together and just <laughs> watching what happened.
0: I can't believe how many notes Nick took on that day.
2: Oh, he was the only one working. None of us did. Did he ever write a story about it? Uh, he did. I think he wrote a journal story for it eventually. Um, but it's still my, my still one of my favourite surfing memories of all time was Blakey fa- fading Nick in the pool on oh, the that last
0: was, That was the most glorious thing in that last wave and everyone's riding and Nick's paddling <laughs> for it and Blakey <laughs> just suddenly just goes down the shoulder, fades in. And... The, last, the wave last wave of the day
2: oh my god like he just it was like it was like a stuck bear someone had stuck a bear with a
0: pole and it just he just went
2: (laughs) it
0: was was a very funny day hey um so sean tell us you know for people who don't know tell us your backstory so you began at tracks in the 90s yeah i walked in the door there in the late 90s
2: 97 i think um and yeah, it was still like, we, we, we turned up in an office, it was called the pit and all the action sports mags were thrown in together. Like waves was there, but there was like, it was a skate mag run by this, you know, all these loose guys. There's a dirt bike mag. There was this. And, um, but then unfortunately in this pretty much the same week that I started, the English took over the mag, Emap. map. Yeah. And then, and then we end up, we got upgraded into new offices and, and had those guys as bosses for, I don't know, 10
0: years, which was pretty horrible. And then yeah, well, you showed up. When did you start I away? I was I always, always found it a very lovely, inclusive, and kind environment after after working at, I guess, a couple of other publishing companies.
2: Yeah, they had they had moments, but um it was just an odd fit to have, you know, to have English bosses and and they they had a model where they'd send out some new hotshot MD to run the country run the company. And he'd come in, screw down costs, screw the, you know, we were just these colonials and screw costs, rip all this money out of your budget. And then they'd fuck off back to try and get a promotion in the mothership. So, and you had a series of those guys and it was kind of, you know, it, it was just an odd fit for a surf mag. But, man, we, we, we sold it on and, and, you know, they, they were fun days because that's the height of the surf industry right then.
0: Yeah, and also the, the tracks was the height of its sort of um... – pivot to the uh, arch Australian voice, yeah. you know, it had gone from, you know, very like what you're doing in surfing world now, very left wing, very environmentally conscious, thoughtful interviews. And then it kind of started morphing, you know, Tim Baker, reggae, and then, um, you know, you know, Ridgway Choco uh, with Daddy and yourself. And it became hyper Australian, didn't it?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. We were really jingoistic we fully. Um, but that's kind of what we felt, you know, we kinda of, and that was the nineties too. It was like, you know, it was it was such a strange time. It was still anti, you know, you think back it was anti-body board, it was it was pretty lawless back then. But the one the, the one real commonality it was it was super, you know, it was Australia against America, it was really positioned that way. Um and we were we were we were arch Australian. We were Australian as you get.
0: It was very, it was very lick my balls with um Paul Sargent, yeah, well, mate. can you hear Yeah. Move? Oh, Chaz. Chaz. Chaz is looking some... Okay, okay, good.
1: Charlie. Sitting working tech back here, trying to make my dumb computer work, but loving every word, Sean Norty. Good to see you, Chaz. Good to see you, too. But I had a quick question about back to jingoism. Mm. JS here in Oceanside getting blown up. Doesn't doesn't that make your heart pitter patter a little bit? The good old days. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's
2: I
0: I saw that. What a classic. I think Jay. I think Jay should be uh, stoked for some publicity. It's amazing free publicity. Oh, totally. He probably did it himself. <laughs> he, <came> up, <laughs> he spelt like it was JS, didn't he? That <laughs> uh, was wild. So um, so Shauna, so. You, you know that very jingoistic, very Australian voice, but then you morphed over the years into a, a very different and quite a thoughtful writer. Was that a deliberate, you know, move? Or just happened naturally?
2: Oh, I kind of yeah. I think if you do anything long enough, you actually try and get good at it. Um, and and those early days at tracks, like you look back to that crew we had in there, it was like there was myself, like Ronnie Blakey, like Vaughan Blakey was still in the building. Um Ben Mundy was in the building. Um, you, you had all these other guys that, heaps of guys you you know, Derek, that they were just complete clowns. And so that the the prime directive was to have the best time possible. And the mag, the mag, you, scram, you scrambled it together at the end of the month, pretty much. But then we kind of like, you know, and actually you you played a part in this. I remember because we did, we were just doing those kind of jingoistic kind of puerile. You know, teenage boys mags, but then I remember when remember those two shark attacks in two thousand. Oh, the one with um the guy um, on his honeymoon and the young guy at blacks. Yeah, yeah. That happened on consecutive days, and you actually planned to see. You said, "Man, you should, you know, you should, you guys should have a look at because you're at Waves at that point because you're in the office up the up the hall, and." And it's not really a wave story. He said, "Man, you got you know, you should probably send someone down." And so he sent DC down, DC Green, and he did this, this amazing story about the week after those attacks. Yeah, it was, it was a beautiful story, wasn't it? it? Yeah, it was incredible. And he went down like and spoke to all the all the crew, you know, the the you know the surfing circle, and and it's such an insular place down there anyway. And and I think DC had had a bit of history down there anyway at that point. But he went back down and. And did this amazing story and kind of – and came back and we, we actually put a shark on the cover. It sold shitloads. Um, so we were 20 years ahead of you guys on this thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I was there. I a remember that, actually. I remember it happening. And I remember saying, fuck, yeah, you know, put, put a fucking shark on the cover and it's an amazing story. And because Trax had the, had the history where I could do those sorts of stories and, and I just come back from Europe and um, I was working with Sammy on Waves and that was, that was more about, um, you know, being, I guess, punk and – and um, that sort of shit. But tracks had that history where it could do those long-form stories. Mm.
1: I think
0: that was kind of its, a nice little pivot, huh? Yeah, so that shifted
2: my thinking a little bit. And then the Peterson book landed on my lap kind of the following year. So,
0: and then, you know. Well, let's, let's, talk about, let's talk about the MP book.
1: Yeah. That
0: would have talk been a, books a long, in general. Yeah, because Michael Peterson was, for, for a long, long time, he was sort of the man in Australian 7, the great mystery and, you know, the great enigma and you were given, um, you know, front seat access. It was funny, around the same time, or maybe a little bit before, I'd uh, at Surfing Life, I had taken Kelly to meet, Kelly and Lisa Anderson to meet MP. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was a, um, that was a very odd experience. For the, we had this award where all the tour surfers voted for the best surfers, and it was, must have been um, mid-90s. And I got Tommy Peterson to shape a triple stinger thing. And then I wanted MP to present the board to Kelly, and then I remember going to the shitty little townhouse in Bedora Point or something, or South Tweed or whatever. And then yeah, an MP's in the bathroom putting his aviators on and getting ready for Kelly. And, and then they just had the most awkward meeting for about half an hour. Oh. <laughs> and walked away and Kelly's just sort of looking at me, going, what the fuck was that?
2: <laughs> yeah, those two those two characters together would be just mondo awkward. I know. Yeah. <laughs> the two most awkward men in the world meet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, man, so like, the thing landed in my lap. And, and as a cub, you know, like I, I was a cub nothing at that point. And it was a great untold story in Australian surfing. And this thing lands in your lap and it's like, fuck, it's, like the pressure to not fuck that thing up.
1: How did, um, the, how did it land in your lap? Did you have a relationship uh, with him or family? or With family, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. You said so, you're, the, you're the one who's going to write it. If anyone's going to write it, it's you, Sean Pretty Brady. much. Yeah.
0: Who was it a relationship with to Tommy or his mum? Uh,
2: it was with his sister Dot, actually, originally, okay. and then to his mum and then to Michael. And, and yeah, um, and so there it was, you know, and it was a great untold story. And, and I just I felt in no position at all because I'd never seen him surf. I was completely the wrong person to do it. Um, yeah. And there were a million guys like, you know, Nick and, and Phil and, and guys who'd grown up with him who would have you know, given their left nut to do it, um, and yet this dickhead gets it, and, and I'm just going, fuck, what am I going to do with this thing? It's like the pressure to – because I'd never written a book. I don't think I'd written anything over like like 3,000 words at that point.
1: Um, you, well, yeah, what did you do? What was your process in terms of – I mean, did you just start figuring out format or did you just well, dig in or –
2: I just the one thing I, I, I thought I could do, Chaz. I like, said, so look, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna write this sparkling, you know, high 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 end profile. But I can work my ass off with this, and I can speak to everyone, and I can get to know everyone, and I can do all the foundational shit um, to actually present something at the end of it that represents, you know, what what happened. And I had to kind of backfill. I, I knew a lot about Australian surf history and, and I knew a bit about Michael, but I didn't know a lot. Um, so I just started, just started interviewing crew and talking. And I spent like months and years up there and, and, and just with all these crew in the peripheries um, trying to get an idea. Like interviewing Michael was basically impossible. He wouldn't, like for the first six months, he wouldn't talk to me. Um, I'd walk in, sit at the, the kitchen table. He'd he'd actually look like Derek does right now. He'd walk out with his glasses on, to avoid any eye contact, and would just sit opposite you at the table, and and wouldn't talk to you. And and it it was so like talking of awkward. You'd put questions, and mm, yeah, yeah, chime, yeah, yeah, and it wouldn't he wouldn't reply. One thing cracked it, and. Because I wasn't sure. Because obviously I knew he was schizophrenic, and I was learning about schizophrenia as well, and how that presented, and and what that actually meant, and which was an which was another rabbit hole altogether. But I, you know, I wasn't sure. I'm going, man, like this guy doesn't, you know, he's clearly not Michael Peterson from thirty years ago. I'm going, how damaged is he? You know, is he, you know, is, is he a victim of all this? And and then one day, the best, the thing that switched my thinking. Was that we were there one day together, and his mum, who's really protective of him, you know, he's looked after him for 30 years, she goes, I'm going to go down to Hungry Jack's, Michael, and get lunch. And, and Michael put his order it's
0: in. You're on the Gold Coast, huh?
2: Yeah, yeah. In that same place, you would have, you would have, um, the same little unit at yeah. Tweed Heads there.
1: I Hungry the Jack's.
2: And I've gone in, uh, and I'm, we're still sitting there, and the front door's closed, and you can hear Michael listening for the car to reverse out the driveway, and it's gone. And the second the car's gone, he's just got up, just ignored me completely, gone straight into his bedroom, come, came out with a bunger the size of a, like a, like this. It was around this, about this big, <laughs> a joint, gone straight out the backyard, looked, just lit the thing up, took, absolutely annihilated. It, looked like the place was on fire. And I'm watching all this, and he, it's like I'm not even there. He's watching and just, just finished it. Got, he went and got a little shovel dug a hole in the corner of the garden, buried the roach, came back in, went in, washed his hands, brushed his teeth and sat down as his mum pulled back in. (laughs) And I've just gone, man, this guy guy is a pro and he's still there. Um, And so I knew, yeah, I I knew he was still, yeah, underneath all that.
0: uh, Still winning heats to the very end.
2: Yeah, totally. Yep. So he was still sharp as a tack and still super funny and, he just had to win his trust, which took, you know, which took about a year. Just think how
1: good that Hungry Jacks tasted to him right <laughs> right when he was finished. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's oh. a pro move if I've ever heard one.
2: Oh, it was masterful <laughs> to watch it happen. It was just, it was masterful. Then you go, well, all these stories about him winning heats and how he used to just school these guys, it all made sense right then.
1: I, I know it. it's, I know it's super cliched, obviously, but the whole Frank Sinatra has a cold where you don't, you're, your subject is not engaging with you? I mean, were you aware of all that at the time and thinking, okay, if I just watch and observe Peterson and write around him or, I mean, yeah, what was your literary?
2: Yeah.
1: I don't think I I had the chops at that stage, Chaz,
2: to kind of understand the potential to do something like that. And I didn't have the runs on the board either. And so, but I did eventually – and that would have been, for someone who really knew their shit, if you asked me to do the story now, I could have done that story now. But, but you know, 20 years ago, no, I was no chance. Um, but eventually he cracked and I found little subjects that you could get him started on and that he would talk to you. Like shaping was one. Um, if you talked about surfboards, he would open up. Um, and then slowly that was like a, that was a door to another door to another door. And, and eventually, you know, we got enough from him to actually but but it almost the book still felt like everyone else's recollections and then he'd come in for little cameos and just and set them straight.
0: So I think my favorite part of the book was the um was the forward you wrote. And it's something about going to the TAB or and it was um and it was in first person. It wasn't in, in you know the third person of the book that you said you didn't have the chops to write but but when I read that um forward it was it was pretty clear you had the you had the ability to have you know, carried off the entire thing in that style, but you didn't have yeah, the Yeah, yeah. I probably could have, but it was, you know, the, just the
2: feeling of having, you were doing, it was like a national service to Australia, to Australian surfing, to do that the right way. Um, and, and I just wanted to get the fuck out of the way of that story and just, <laughs> and just and let the story, you know, um,
1: the, let the story be what it needed to be. Do you, what do you feel about books now? Do you like when a book lands in your lap, are you like rubbing your hands with glee or are you like, oh, oh, hell no. Is it uh, commission books or books I actually want to read? No, commission books, books you're going to, you're set to write.
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. It's far more interesting and far less pressure. Um, You know, I feel now I've got a fair idea of when something lands of the book I want to write uh, when it lands. Whereas when that one landed, I had no fucking idea what it, you know, it was just, it was just anxieties piling on, on each other. Um, but now, yeah, I can kind of, you know, feel I've got a bit of room to move and I know what's readable and kind of what, what is interesting to other crew and and stuff I like to read. So, um, I, I certainly feel a bit more freedom now.
0: It's, it's You're telling me yesterday that when you delivered the Bra Boys book, you delivered a quarter of a million words. I can't even imagine writing that many words. A
1: Quarter of Isn't a million I? words. <laughs> I get to fifty thousand and think I'm
0: climbing Mount Everest. It was all well. It
2: was all first person transcripts, but there was a bit of there was a little bit of art in stitching them together. But man, yeah, I wanted that thing. It was I think I, it was seven or eight hundred pages that it went in at, um, and got trimmed back to about five hundred, but. It was so, so damn good. The, the first person transcripts and the stories, it was so outrageous and just this place that felt like it was on another planet. Um, it, I just wanted it all, all to be in there. Um, what, was
1: the, what was the legal read on that? I mean, did the, uh, did the publishing lawyers just come in with? Oh, dude, it was, it was a picnic, chess. Um, yeah. <laughs> they, were all, they were all over it because there was the, the
2: publisher's lawyer, there was the Abaddon Brothers' lawyer, because it was, this was just on the other side of Jai's court case, yeah, where he'd been acquitted. So obviously it was, and it was like super high profile and and acquitted uh, of, acquitted of murder too. The, the yeah, murder. acquitted of murder. Well, so well, it was,
1: acquitted of smoking a roach in the yard and burying it. No,
2: and it was, it was, it was pretty seriously vetted. But um, but the real like the what I found the real story was that. Like the Abboton story in the middle of all of this was just part of the wider Rubra story that went back. Some of the more fascinating stuff was the generation before those guys that that really that shaped them, and they were like, man, it makes the the makes the Abboton boys look like altar boys. You know, the, the crew before them were even wilder still, and and to get a kind of bit of a sense of that and package it all together, and um, it it was a long few years to get it done.
0: Is that how long you write it? It
2: took a couple of years at least, yeah. Because it was also like I had to get – it was funny because you had to – this was when Kobe was probably the biggest surfer in the world. He was on every cover. He was on every big wave sesh. He was – and so Kobe was just off being Kobe. Um, Jai was in the middle of all his troubles as well. So you had – trying to get a hold of Jai was was pretty tough at that point. Um, Sonny was there and, and Sonny was helping pull it all together. But it was just a wild time. And like, you're, like you would remember, Derek, and probably even you, Chaz, like when you came around, how that Maroubra scene, how, how much interest there was with it. Yum. And it was just wild. You know, it was on every – like every week there'd be a Daily Telegraph like cover expose on those guys and some outrageous story of some fight or – and it was just – it was big news in Sydney at that point. You
1: were dating Starlets back then.
2: Yeah, and Kobe had them lined up. Yeah, it was one after the other, and um, it was just it was just a wild time. Just and I, I kind of just sat back in the middle of it and just watched a heap of it. Um, but at the end of the day, I wanted the book to be their story. Like they always go, well, like you know, we get written off so much, and people can say we said this or that. And I said, boys, well, this is your chance just to to put it out there. You know, in your own words, no filter, no one getting the road of it. Go for it. Um
1: if you could, if publisher said, here is your million dollar advance, Sean Doherty, write your masterpiece. Do you have it?
2: Mm. Uh, probably not. No, I don't. I, I haven't got a burning desire to write anything that, that's nothing sitting there. Um, I, I don't want to write fiction. I, I kind of worked that out. And the, crew, and the crew I've ended up doing books on, you couldn't really make them up anyway. Um, so I've got no desire to go near fiction at all. And, and there's still enough characters out there that I, and I, and I still love the, you know, the, that whole process of interviewing, finding crew, like extracting stories um, and, and finding stuff. is still pretty fascinating to me and that process. And, and I, I think
1: that's the medium I'd probably, I'd, I'd rather work in. Is there, is there a world if you if say money and access wasn't, a, wasn't an issue is there a world you would just die to crack?
2: Uh, yeah. I, well, I kind of, I don't know. I probably, maybe it's the same sense you guys have as well. Once you've worked around surfing for enough stuff, much of it becomes very fucking boring um, and one-dimensional and you start looking for other little rabbit holes and things to go down. Um, and so someone pitched at me like a political bio or a bio on someone, you know, like someone really, yeah, you know, active at that end, i jump at it. Like, you've had a run at it, Derek. Like, how was it Bob for you? Bob Hawk.
1: What if Hawk. you could write the best Bob Hawk book ever, Sean <laughs> Doherty? <laughs> <laughs> well, I love and-
0: <laughs> For me, it was like, because um, you had these sort of your surfing heroes, but then they kind of get quickly dispelled by working in that industry. But then to go into the world of these guys who were my political heroes when I was a kid, or, or people who were really prominent politically, politically and all these things you've seen on the news and heard about and read about in newspapers, and then to then to have that person in front of you, and they're just telling you these wild stories. And it's funny when I went to the Bob's funeral at the Sydney Opera House. I was doing this um, breakfast TV show on the forecourt, and uh, with ABC. And it's funny, you know, me as a kid from the suburbs, and in the if I can work for surfing bags, being asked very serious questions about this um, iconic prime minister. <laughs> And then this really prominent uh, political journalist, Barry Hasty, came out to me and goes, Oh, mate, you got a whole bunch of stories that we didn't get. I was just going, Jesus Christ. How, yeah. good, is this? How good is this? And it was only, only because I was sort of the accidental idiot, you know, the, the chance, the kind of the, um, the, um, the Peter Sellers, you know, being their kind of um, character who just sort of stumbled into these things. You're the complete. But, uh, yeah, I, I loved every second. I thoroughly recommend it, Sean. Yeah, you're the completely wrong guy to write that book, which made you the perfect guy to write it. Yeah, I spent most of my time flirting with his wife. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I like the old ladies. But it's funny because you spoke about MP, and um, I had a similar experience with uh, David Gulpilil, the Aboriginal actor. Oh yeah. But you know, it takes so long for them to get to know you, and then you're just sitting there with your, with your you know audio recorder, and they're saying nothing, and you're saying nothing, and <laughs> you're just sort of looking around. <laughs> and then you just end, you know end up interviewing um, you know a million people around it. But then but then eventually it does develop some form of a relationship and uh, that's, for
1: both, that's where both of you guys have gone totally wrong. If you make every book only about yourself, then you can make your, your subject is always willing to speak. It's, perfect. <laughs> it's a, it's a no lose situation. <laughs> You've always got access.
0: You're a, you're a word factory. I, I thought you were a
1: word factory
0: until um Sean O's quarter of a million words.
1: Yeah, no kidding. What the hell? Mm. I'm, I'm literally rounding the corner of my book right now. I just, Past fifty-three thousand words, and just sat back and thought, "I'm basically done."
0: What do you reckon yours will be? Chess sixty thousand?
1: I reckon at the end it'll be sixty. Yeah, yeah, yeah 60 Fifty-three. Without... Once I feel I'm done, then it's totally. I mean, then it goes through massive rewrites, or whatever. But at least that first draft is done. Once I once I think, oh, I'm done. Even yeah, it's a real problem feeling done. You start looking for a closing sentence, huh? That's it. That's all. I've got my closing sentence already. <laughs> oh, what is it? Uh, I can pull it up right now. Hold on. Wait. You keep talking. This will take a minute. Hey Sean, have you ever, have you ever
0: uh, written the ending of a book long before its actual end? Like when I wrote the Hawk book, I had the I had the ending long before um, it actually finished. Um, <laughs> I do as a principal sometimes. Because you're always looking for, for an
2: exit. Like, you know, like any writer, especially even when you're working in shorter forms, you're looking to come in hot and go out hot. And, and so you're always looking when you're trying to structure stuff to, to find what's, at, what's going to, what point you're going to exit this thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like with the Peterson book, he, the exit point was him coming back out um, into some kind of public recognition after 20, 30 years of, of being at home. Um, and so that kind of, that, that happened organically. The, the process of doing the book almost did that as well, um, which was kind of nice. So that thing just popped up. But as a general rule, yeah, you're always, I think you're always looking for it.
0: So, Chaz, you got your, you got your final sentence there?
1: I got it, I got it. It's exactly I respond, or not exactly, but close. Oh, that's a doozy. That's very British and Alice, isn't it? <laughs> That's it. They, exit play. Exit. <laughs> <laughs> exit the screen. Right. Damn writing.
0: So for the, for people who um, aren't aware, maybe Sean isn't aware. What's the um, uh, theme of your new book?
1: Oh, my cousin uh, went on a bank robbing tear, uh, and it's a cousin from the this, the mom side of the family, which is all very evangelical Christian, either mega church pastors or missionaries, uh, and. Cousin Charlie came out and became a surf journalist uh, and went down that wrong path. But Cousin Danny went down the bank robbing path. He robbed 19 in six months, I think. Uh, Got snagged, did his prison time, got out, tried to steal art and jewels, and went back on a bank robbing tear again. All evangelical. Did he he, uh,
0: take much money? Uh,
1: I don't know how much he got ever. I know how much he, like his highs and lows, kind of. I mean, lows are high-speed police chases where the money gets pitched out the window. Uh, I don't think the highs were that big. It was like, I think twenty or thirty grand, maybe. Um, like per bank. Well, huh? Per bank. Yeah, uh, yeah, per bank. Uh, yeah. But then he had a he had a gambling problem. So I mean, <laughs> it's a good place to launder money. I've learned. I've learned a lot of things about bank robbing. The whole thing just makes me want to go rob banks. Do people still rob banks? They do. It's right, a victimless got, crime. It used, to be a, um, it used
0: to be a bit of a thing, you know, um, you know banks. But now I guess because banks are pretty much disappearing, huh? I mean,
1: I, I think so. But I think also like desperate. I mean, that to me is that because he and I grew up together. I mean, he's a couple years older than me. And we grew up together in the same family, the same values, the same everything. And so imagining what it would take for me to stand over a teller and say, you're being robbed. Like, imagine. Can you, could you do it? No, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a humanist, Chaz. Sean, could you go into a bank and rob it? I, w- I mean, there's always a circumstance that would make you do it, right? Like your family's done. I mean, there's some circumstance, I reckon, for every red-blooded male to go rob a bank. I'd, I'd love to know what those circumstances would be, um,
2: but they would have to be pretty wild. Sure. I'd mean, walk in with a motorbike helmet on and, and uh,
1: yeah, shoot the place up. Maybe her, her would probably do it. Living in, living in bank robbery for the last six months or whatever, however long I've been writing this thing, I just am so envious of the COVID era for all the bank robbers. When you can walk into any bank fully mask, masked up out of the gate and not have them shoot you upon entry. I don't know <laughs> how this is not the, the bank robbing's golden age. It's an epidemic of bank robberies. I, it's gotta <laughs> be. So they, it got to be. They've got to be.
0: So, Sean, what's your process of uh, writing? Do you wake up in the morning, go straight to it, write 1,000 words or, or what?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've got to get up early because my days just get blown apart. Otherwise, as soon as the phone starts ringing, um, it's, you know, I get a couple of hours. Like I'll, I'll get up often if stuff's due, I'll get up at four and just and just work through the early hours. I can't work. I don't work late. Um, but that, those, those early hours, you wake up, your head's clear, phone's not ringing. Um, you yeah, know, they're the golden hours.
1: You're not a boozy writer? You're not a boozy writer?
2: I don't know. I do boozy write, boozy afternoon, but I, I run out of, I run out of juice, like, you know, seven, eight o'clock. I can't go past that. Um, and I do, yeah, right. You know, Right. Sober. Uh, right. Drunk, edit sober. That old Maxim.
1: I've been really trying to flip that lately too. <laughs> it's not quite, quite flipped, but right drunk at drunk. <laughs> How's that going for you? I don't think very good.
0: <laughs> What's the best piece of drunk writing you've ever created, Sean?
2: Um I used to do all my um all my mag intros drunk because that was the because we, you know, being mag veterans, you don't, you understand how mags work. You don't do anything for 3 weeks and then scramble the whole thing together in the last week so you'd be so we'd sleep in the office for like 3 or 4 days at the end just bunk down we'd sleep in the storeroom and under desks and but then you just get yeah you you just get um months at night and drink and yeah it's kind of like old school um you know newspaper media office where everyone was drunk and you drink at night and then those things yeah i'd write them and it was like they'd be the last thing i'd write at night and i'd be you know seven or eight beers in and then you'd wake up in the morning it's like the word fairies have been and then you have got vague <laughs> recollections of having done something around that, and then you just open the file and get, and you go ooh, hang on. But <laughs> then there's a the bits of it. There's bits of it you would never ever contemplate writing sober that are there, little diamonds. And then right. if you can, you got your head head together enough to stitch stitch it together and um, hit send.
0: The glorious days in the um, Emap office. I remember um, working with Ronnie Blakey and uh, on deadline. And buying, um, I think, a dozen of beers around the world and having beer tasting contests and all sorts of things. Yeah, they were they were good days. Did you enjoy those days in that office? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, because there was no um, there was no pressure for me to make money. So I was just doing it, you know, to have to have fun and you know. And um, it's good friends with Sammy and then uh, Ron and and you know Campbell Milligan. We went off to do more. Children was there, and uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a really nice period. Everyone was so kind. I, I thought. Mm. Yeah, it was a good crew. There was a really good crew between waves and tracks at that point. So, Sean, what's good surf writing to you? Um, I, I suppose it's stuff that
2: contextualises it. You know, that's a, again, it's another maxim that the actual writing about the surfing part is, can be terribly fucking boring and very few people do it well. Um, it's the stories that kind of thread in between and around and um, the actual surfing act. That's the interesting shit. Um, and the surfing just acts as wallpaper, you know? Um, who, are
1: you, who are your icons in surf journalism? I mean, uh, who are the best, the best, let's go best five.
2: Okay. Well, again, we're, we're supremely jingoistic. So we only read Australian stuff. So essentially for me, it was like Jarrett and Carol were were the two big dogs. Um, when I first started reading surf mags and, and it was Nick, like Nick was the big dog. Um, and he'd write, you know, the, like we were saying, Derek, these big, deep, you know, he'd just dive into it. But he was all, he was very much about the surfing act, um, Nick. And he, that was, he would just drill down into that. Whereas Phil was the opposite. And I discovered Phil's stuff a little later. Um, once I started editing tracks and I started rereading the, the back catalogue. And Jarrett was, Jarrett was the opposite. Jarrett, Jarrett was gonzo. He'd write all around it set the scene, all the fucking madness, um, and then the surfing thing we just – we dropped in the middle at the end. Um, but both were brilliant. I loved – yeah, I loved all of that stuff. But it's – yeah. Man, they, they were the two kind
0: of really formative ones for me. It's interesting. Whenever I used to – because Nick used to contribute to surfing life when I was there and, and the stories would get faxed through – and it was just like, you know, at the time in the 90s, receiving, you know, like sacrament from fucking Moses or something. <laughs> and technically, that is so perfect. And they had some great title. And they'd be so wise and so pithy and everything. He, he really was quite the little master.
2: Yeah, he was good. And again, it's like, you know, um, it's still to that point that day. It was like at Lamore, man. Who was the only guy with a fucking notepad? Um, Nick Carroll. Nick Carroll. The rest of us, the other clowns, the rest of us were all surfing and drinking and and whatever. Nick was on. Nick was on the job, so. But he didn't get the
0: last wave.
2: He didn't get the last wave. No, party waved. <laughs> <laughs> His he protege the-
0: just fades the fuck out of him. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Goes relatively empty-handed. Yeah. I mean, you you reported beautifully. And I remember in 2012, I think, when the when Dirk Ziff took over the um, ASP. Yeah. So what- what were your impressions then of the new owners and, you know, where do you think the WSL is now? Oh,
2: uh, I think it's landed now about where I expected it to land back in 2012. <laughs> <laughs> I, think on, I think the writing was on the wall because, um, you know, there was a real sense back then even that it was a, yeah, it was a, essentially a, a bit of a, the sport was being privatised. It was, gonna, it was very, a very corporate privatisation and it's kind of run true to that pretty much um, all the way through, you know, when, whenever you've got a mysterious billionaire owner who you never see, <laughs> it's like, it's it's real, it almost, again, it's one of those things, it almost sounds like a work of fiction that you couldn't, you know, if you go, well, okay, we'll just dream up for a minute that this, this sport gets taken over by this reclusive, you know, billionaire, um, this, this loose free spirit sport and it gets taken over by a reclusive billionaire who you don't see and and gets corporatized and it does sound like a like a pitch
1: for a, for a book Here, here's uh, your masterpiece totally there it
2: is yeah well actually nick well nick and i are we're most of the way through a narrative history of the tour oh that's epic when mm. when's release i've actually got well <laughs> we've missed four deadlines on it, it it's re, it's releasing in 2017 chas <laughs> perfect I'm so, it was so good it was so good Sean it was epic now we missed four <laughs> deadlines on it um, and I've actually after we hang up I've got to email the publisher and just go and lock us in
1: and say April next year we're doing but it. but you can't I, I reckon I mean the story's still unspooling right this is the I mean what's gonna happen like well, this, this is the this is the best thing about it is like when we started like I can't even remember the contracts here it was
2: 2016 or 2017 Nick and I were talking. Going fuck, like, how does this thing end? Like, where do we go? And then it's like, then it hit like, you know, twenty seven. He's going fuck. It's going to the Olympics. Gone. There's your ending. This is even better. And then, and then it's like COVID comes. It's gone. The whole thing's going to collapse. It's even you know. There's your ending. It's had about eleven endings since. So I don't even know what the ending will eventually be. I mean, how um, exciting
1: to be hanging on though, and not knowing as the as the writer where this is going to go.
2: Totally. Yeah. It's like. Mate, none of us know. It's, and I don't, have, don't even think the WSL
1: know. So. I'll tell you where it's going to end. The Aberton brothers are going to take it over. And <laughs> there's, your, there's your ending. They moved the tour back to Maroubra.
2: That would be a tour I would <laughs> happily subscribe to.
0: <laughs> hey, Sean, what, what publisher um, accepts a proposal to, <clears throat> to publish a history of the World Professional Surfing Tour?
2: Um, one we've had history with. It's actually my publisher from the
0: Peterson book.
2: Oh, I, uh, well, no, she's moved on to another publisher now.
0: So oh, the the publisher within the publisher. Yes, so it's moved.
2: It's the books moved around a bit, but Nick's worked with her as well. Um, I think Nick did Tom's book with her, so she knows us both. So she was happy to take it on on face value, and and has been quite forgiving that we've let you know twenty five deadlines come and go.
1: <laughs> imagine, imagine it came out pre like, I mean if it came out in 2017 it wouldn't be half the story of pro oh, surfing oh it would have yeah it would, it would have looked stupid now yeah if it had a, had a actually came
2: out on the original deadline and you would have come out and gone oh now look, it's wave pools it's like that might have been your ending and then it's yeah. like oh, hang on a year later no one cares about wave pools and then then a year later it's like it's the olympics and it's then it's the sport going tits up and then it's who knows what it's going to be by the time we finish the thing
0: but you must have an educated guess at what's going to happen. Mm, I've got my thoughts.
2: Yeah, I, I think a lot. It, it, a lot of it rides on this year or this year twenty one. This season, this thing that's about to kick off. Because if if this doesn't go, um, it's going to be really hard to 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 restart it. Um, to defibrillate it back to life, uh, it'll probably take a lot more money, and it'll really test the patience. I reckon of of the crew in charge and the crew bankrolling it. If it lost a second season, um, everything else has pretty much got going. But just, you know, the unique the nature of surfing, the fact that most of the countries involved with it are now running hot with this thing, um, it's the challenges of making a second season happen. Like I wouldn't want to be Pat right now, but it's, it's pretty crucial. Like if it doesn't happen, man, where, where does it leave the whole thing?
1: if you had to throw money on pipe kicking off on December 8th. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that
2: I'd actually probably put money on. They'll, they'll make that happen in some way. Cause if that, if symbolically, if that didn't go, then the whole thing is tits up. Um, like I'm, I'm probably more concerned right now. I'm looking at Australia and, and going, well, how the fuck does at the moment, like we, we basically can't get out where, uh, there, there's no Australian carriers leaving Australia. Like the, crew, the Australian crew have just gone over now and, for pipe and they had to go through San Fran, they had to do all the checks. They'll have to come. Most of them won't come back because if they have to come back, they've got to quarantine for two weeks, they'll miss Christmas and then they'll have to go back a few days later. Um, but, but, man, we're so, like you're seeing what's happening right now, like over in South Australia, they've locked down the entire state for this week for one outbreak for like 20 cases like how many have you got how many active cases you guys got at the moment Chaz?
1: I think so I heard today I uh there's three it was like three out of a couple thousand in San Diego and uh emergency rooms are 30% full yeah uh and the way they said it on the radio was 70% not full uh <laughs> yeah. but yeah like I mean I do not doubt that whatever but Around here, it's just not an issue. Yeah, yeah. I think I can see
2: a way out for them if they manage to get crew here into Australia. The, the problem, their problem, is that they're pulling people from the the places where it's running the hottest, and and the other key part is Australia, which is like, which is essentially the you know, um, it's it's the utopia of virus. It's it's basically been killed off, and you've got to move people between those. Um, things to make it work so if Australia if Australia didn't happen they'd be in real trouble that's three
1: events um, but if maybe, it did happen maybe Dirk Ziff. Dirk Ziff is first in line he's billionaire he's going to pull his connections first in line for the vaccine and all WSL surfers will be vaccinated <laughs> vaccinated before anybody else before frontline workers before before anyone for grandmas uh, the
0: tourists
1: go on they'll get their microchips first Yeah.
0: (laughs) What about the uh, the rumored asking price of the WSL, 150 mil? Yeah. What do you think of that? Anyone going to pay it?
2: Uh, Negative. (laughs) I don't think they were lined up lined up around the corner to uh, the jump at that offer. It's it's like like uh, asking 150 million bucks for Surfing World.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're you're, you're (laughs) going to stink and buy it for for your five magic beans again, Sean.
2: Totally, yeah. Well, maybe we should chip in, boys.
0: <laughs> I love that. How much did uh, Dirk buy the ASP for? Two bucks or a dollar? Yeah, it was like a peppercorn kind of deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny that you buy something for two bucks and you're like, gonna sell it for 150 mil. <laughs> mil a year for eight years. That's good
2: business if you but uh yeah, I don't know. It's at some point it's you know, that's what this year is gonna be pretty crucial. If it doesn't doesn't happen, um, then man, there's gonna be a lot of soul searching about where this thing ends up why are they
0: trying to sell it why Mm. um i don't think it makes any money Derek. (laughs) the joy is gone because it wasn't
2: a board as a play thing for dirk's wife yeah well in fact i'm pretty sure it loses quite a lot um (laughs) but yeah i don't know it's yeah interesting times though it's i'm watching we're watching pipe
0: definitely with interest but Jimmy, you must. You and Nick must have. Nick always alludes to having um, all this juicy information, but he rarely releases it. Is it all going to come out in fantastic new book? Oh, he does more work than I do. He, Nick actually does old school journalism, whereas
2: unlike the rest of us who just kind of make it up. Um, but he's yeah, like um, you know, that they seem pretty pretty doggedly intent on making this year happen. And and I think if you've got a you've got a bit of a war chest and you can spend some money to make stuff happen and open a few doors, um, then, then maybe it will happen. But I, I think what's the really interesting thing, the pivotal moment it's at is because we've all seen this year, how many fucking new people have taken up surfing this year. Mm. So that's what this year is really the thing that's, that could knock the Cell out could also be the same thing that saves it.
1: You reckon they could flip any one of those into a surf consumer? Because I, I feel that none of those people are even vaguely aware there's such thing as a pro surf tour. Mm. Maybe they saw a Quicksilver T-shirt once, but don't even really attach it to surf. I mean, I feel their experience is so disconnected, which is what actually killed the court.
2: Yeah, totally. It's like there's a lot of dynamics there right now with, with a whole bunch of newbies coming in, a, a rusted on bunch of old crews still here, still kind of, you know, still... Looking at it, um, but you know, starting to run out of patience a little bit. Um, I think a lot of people held out hope for this this final surf off thing to be something fucking really good. Um, and I'm not entirely convinced Trestles is it. So <laughs> you're going to lose. I think you're going to lose some crew there. But it's like, like I said, man,
0: yeah, the dancing in the Toledo house when they found out his Trestles was the um, <laughs> final thing. Oh, totally. Yeah, for sure. But um,
2: yeah, I don't know. Toss
0: of a coin at the moment, boys. I reckon. Wow. Well, so, Shauna, um, you work now for Patagonia. You know, the great merchant of um, clothing of soft browns and greys, and you've become um, surfing's great environmentalist warrior. So, just can you describe your conversion? Because because I wasn't aware of it when um, you're getting boozed every uh, night during deadline at uh, tracks, and uh, and your battle with the Norwegian oil drillers.
2: Yeah. Well. Well, I don't know if I had a Damascus moment, but, um, you know, I, I grew up in the bush, so I think that's always kind of been there. Like I grew up 50 yards from the beach here at a national park 100 metres away um, and and that's always kind of, yeah, that, that imprints on a young guy, definitely. But, you know, I think like everyone, Derek, you and I included, you get caught up in that, you know, the surf industry when it was humming as well and everything was... It's a pretty fast world and and you just get dragged along with it. Yeah. And you can kind of lose a lot of that stuff, um, lose your bearings a little bit. And and so I just saw that as a recorrection. Um and getting a chance to work with with those guys, the Patagonia crew, obviously, you know, they're that's that whole environmentalism is built into the to what they do. So and getting I got an opportunity to, to kind of work with that at that point. It was only, it really was. It wasn't, it was like a couple of days a week at that point. Um, and then, but then suddenly it kind of, you know, um, and this is, you know, going into last year, just went nuts. It completely went nuts. And it was literally overnight. So, like, I've always had faith that there's been like a great latent environmental movement there on the coast, because it's been there in the past. Um, But, like, I think we've been pretty self-consumed for quite a long time. Um, And it's because they've been good years to be surfers, you know. The last couple of decades, travel's easy, surfing's cheap, there's fucking good waves everywhere, you know. Um, There's really, you know, you haven't had to worry about the rest of the world too much. Um, But that was never going to stay like that. And so, and this was a bit of a, you know, wake-up call. and, And then when this thing down in the bike took off, like, Man, it was literally, it was like, it was night and day. It just happened overnight. And then there it was. It was just hundreds of thousands of people wanting to, to jump on this thing. And um, it was a bit of a revelation, yeah, for sure.
0: And Paulie McNeil did the best poster, didn't he? Yes. Yep.
2: Yeah, no, he, his art was pretty instrumental to that. Um, but, it was, man, it's drawn people in from all over the place. And, and our big challenge now is that we've got rid of these Norwegian dickheads is um, – is what's next and where does it go? So, but fortunately for us in Australia, we, <laughs> mate, we've got plenty of shit. We've got a shit show going on here all the time. So we, we, we'll never run out of targets. <laughs> what's, the, what's, what's the latest target? Oh, it's made straight You can look out your window. You, you'd see it, Derek. There's one that they want to turn that into a oil field. The
1: Bondi-
2: yeah. Bondo's going to be an oil field. It's coming down. Yeah, it's... Called the Pep Eleven Exploration Zone it comes all the way down to your just straight out your window.
1: Oh, I'd love sweet. to see
2: the <laughs> Eric, sell, sell high. <laughs> so how that's did, yeah, that that's literally did, that's the one we're on right now.
1: So, but Sean, how did you not corrupt yourself quick and go back door and get yourself a sweet pad in Norway? Like you could have <laughs> killed the whole fight the bite thing, Princess Beatrice of Norway. Yeah. As you may know, is a professional surfer, a surf contest winner. She's uh, surf royalty. She is surf royalty in line for the throne. I felt you could have done a little more, like, I don't know. Why make the Norwegians the bad people? Get yourself a sweet <laughs> Norway spot. Come on, do good for yourself. I, I could have. I could have had free surf trips in Norway for
0: all eternity. Ever, forever. You're feeling super professional. It was – sorry, Derek? Did Equinox ever approach you and offer you some money to shut the fuck no, up? No.
2: No. It's been – this is the best part about it, man. It's actually sport. These guys are so unaccustomed to being challenged by – because, like, basically what happened, right, was this, this thing broke – this thing really broke over one Instagram post. I, I put up an Instagram post that, of the spill modelling for this thing down here in the bite, and literally overnight – I went from having about 200 likes for a post to this thing went to like 30,000 overnight and it went everywhere. And all of these people just piled on and it was it was everyone from down there and it was all, and all Australian just abusing these guys, just like the stuff coming out was just, I'm just going, oh, my God, can you imagine being a social media manager at Equinor <laughs> and waking up this morning and having to translate this shit? It's just like... And that that was it. And that was their own spill modelling too, wasn't it? Yeah, it was their own spill. Yeah, totally. Yep. So, and that was the beauty of it. But they're, they're so un- unaccustomed to having people pushing back against, them. it, it became this huge um, PR nightmare, you know, because you had all a lot of smart asses in amongst all of this, and and people who could really make them look stupid. Um, and it was for, for the Norwegians because they were state owned. It was particularly. Um, it was particularly a sore point for them. They couldn't allow that to happen. And so watching them squirm and then watching, you know, as this thing, this thing kind of grew life and watching all the, you know, the vested interest squirm, it was epic.
0: It was like, it was a great, was so so great. fun. companies never to be transparent in the possible ramifications of, in this case, oil exploration. Like if they pulled the um, spill graphic back quite a bit, you'd have had nothing to, uh, to milk, huh? <laughs>
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah, we used a bit of their own stuff against them. But uh, but we got, you know, I think we would have got them anyway in the end. That the, the basic idea of what they were doing was pretty fucking dumb in the first place. So it was pretty easy to argue against, um, to offer a compelling argument. But it's, yeah, man, it's just, it's sport now. It's like, and there's so much of it here. and And it's just, I think people are just sick of, of these interests getting made in the, you know, these decisions getting made in the interests of fossil fuel companies and, and just not of the, not of the long-term interests of the people.
1: Where are you at on the Kelly Slater surf ranch in the wetland?
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I think I, I, firmly sit in the, uh, in the anti group with that. That's kind <laughs> to like, it. that's, it's been interesting to watch that. And, uh, that's that, if that gets to another level, um, then that will, that will become a flashpoint. I can probably tell you right now.
1: Have they started digging actually on that thing yet? Is there any movement on it? It's still nothing.
2: No, nah, they need government money to come in. Um, and they've just had a Queensland election up there where they were pitching, you know, they were pitching pretty hard and, and, and trying to get the Queensland government to throw billions at it, um, you know, jobs and growth and all that shit. But they didn't get it. So I don't, I, I don't know. If it, if it jumped to another level of approval, then people would go batshit crazy, I reckon.
1: Um, so, how could you sleep at night, Sean Doherty? <laughs> you, I mean, being a, being a crusader now, you, every one of your nights sleeps, as opposed to your surf journalism days where it's just God. hurting people and being a dirty bird. Just doing a grommet
2: profile. <laughs> 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 Those were the days. <laughs>
0: John, how do you think Kelly squares up in his own head the the wetlands development and the sunny coast to mm-hmm. his own um, environmental ideals? Because I, I believe he's he's genuine in his um, beliefs that.
2: The world oh yeah, yeah. There's,
0: but, from- yeah.
2: There's some major cognitive dissonance in there around a lot of things. I think environmentally, that um, he hasn't quite come to terms with. I don't know how how it rationalizes in his head, um, but I think if you pull back and look at the the, the footprint of these things and and what you're trading off to to create a piece of in, infrastructure that, that kind of already exists naturally. Um, About 2Ks away, isn't
0: it? Then you, sorry? About 2Ks away from the ocean, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's not far. Yeah, exactly, you know. And I, I don't think we're running out of surfable coastline here in a hurry. So having to dig up a wetland and, you know, pump it full of, pump water out of the river and build a residential estate, um, I don't know. It all, all feels a little unnecessary to me. But it's yeah, the, the, yeah. We could you could fill another podcast on on Kelly and the that cognitive dissonance with <laughs> the environmental footprint.
0: I, lo- I love how environmentally destructive it is, how pointless it is, but how awesome it would be as well. Imagine living in one of those little condos near the near the Slater Pool.
2: Yeah, well, that's yeah, you know, that's clearly the dream. That was you know when they sketch this thing out. That's what it is. You live there. You surf there. Um,
0: is it the cultural center to is, read about the birds that got killed for it? It's, yeah, the ones that used to live there. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the indigenous people we had to colonize and slaughter. Had to move off to make it happen. Yeah. Put, put on the reservations.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't I, I, To be honest, I'd be surprised if that one got off the ground.
1: So um, that's, the only, that's the last great hope of the Slater pools, right? I mean, where else do they have? That's the yeah, one that they have the best shot at.
2: Yep. Uh, they're prospecting like yeah you do know, you think back to when even when we did the day in the tub and you go man they're probably going to end up with a lot of these things all around the place um, sure and what are we now five years down the track and, and not and one that, not yeah, one
0: that's it yeah the is it so interesting Derek, times
1: boys Derek Rowley spoiled
0: it I just, well I spoiled it for everybody <laughs> it involved Vomit was so close to vomiting that damn spa with fucking. um What's, What's Kelly's best mate called? Um, oh, Salima Masakella. Yep.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Anyway, he really chundered in his jacuzzi um, with him. <laughs> Loves his protein bars there, man. Hey, Sean, I want you to take, take us out today with your five best interview subjects and why this has delighted you so.
2: Okay. Um, I can give you one straight up, probably my favourite all-time interview, Pauline Mensah. Mm. Well, she is the gold standard for interviews. Completely runs... Without a filter, no operating filter, um, still swears like a sailor. True as the day is long. Um, Colourful, funny, um, overdeveloped personality. Still the best, like always for me. We always will be.
0: Pauline Ments with
2: her. Pauline mentor. yeah, all the time.
0: Yep. Oh yeah, but
2: still. Yep. She's up just up there at uh, at Bruns, and still driving the school bus. And but yeah, she's a bit of gold.
0: So for people who aren't aware, she won the World Time like ninety one or something. Yeah, 93.
1: 93. Yeah, yeah. Which, which that's us.
2: but did it? Did it all with yeah, with no money, no sponsorship. Um, you know, and she's uproariously funny. Just takes the piss out of herself and everyone else, and and just good value. Yeah. All right, number two. Um, Kobe. <laughs> I think <laughs> it's got to be. Yeah. Okay. He's just—he's just still for me probably the best, the best storyteller with the best stories, I've ever encountered, and he will give you one hundred and ten percent of the truth, um, and but they're just and they're so outrageous. But you know, with Kobe, they're probably very likely to be true. These stories, um, and just the way he delivers them too—it's like almost deadpan. Um, he's not—he's not trying to push them on you, but they're just there. He's, you know, he, he for me still is the, the probably the best storyteller ever surfing has ever seen. Wow. And number three? Um, hmm. I think Mason for a, for a contemporary kind of hit just because he will, you know what it's like interviewing people? If your subject's more enthusiastic than you are, things will work. And there is no man in the so no surfer in the world more enthusiastic than Mason Ho, and, and knowledgeable as well. And he'll just, and he'll just in his own head, jump, skip dimensions to to the seventies, and he'll move to here somewhere else, and and something will ping off, and he'll go to Desert Point, and
0: and it's, it's just you just got to
2: hang on for the ride, but it's but hugely entertaining.
0: Behind behind that you know that cute uh, persona. Uh, who is Mason that you've discovered? Is there a serious side? Yeah. I don't know. I, it's it's kind of hard because it, it's almost
2: that character is so, it is essentially him, you know. Like, it'd be interesting to see, you know, what really, you know, when he gets down, what he's like, and, but you just don't see it because he's just had, every day seems like the best day of his life, which is, which is, man, if that's, that would be pretty cool. I'd love that to happen to me.
1: But <laughs> then the a cool. masterpiece hanging out for forty eight hours with Mason Ho. Oh yeah, but you feel so good, like
2: you hang out with him. Like, Fuck, I feel good. I want to go surf, and I want to, you know, I want to do this. And um, he, he's just, yeah, his energy is just infectious. Um, I'll probably throw Steph in. I think, I think only just for a, like, especially for a, a surf IQ. Um, she's got like she's so finely tuned with she can talk surfing and make it interesting and explain what's going on and the feeling and she's very good at that which i think is kind of half the the reason that she's kind of held like the the guy that male surfers can sit there and listen go "Whoa, okay that that makes perfect sense about surfing you know she's really been able to bridge a lot of that just because she can um she can talk about surfing you know it's not an easy thing if like you, you speak to anyone any good surfer very few of them can actually put that surfing act into words and really, really just put a light bulb above your head and go, wow, that makes sense. Yeah,
0: but she can. What insights has she given you into the um, beautiful act of surfing?
1: Um,
2: uh, I did interview actually for the new surfing world. It wasn't much about surfing. It was more about kind of being at home for the lockdown thing. But, you know, she, she She's talked a lot. You know, she can talk surfboards as well. That's another language she's pretty good in. Um, but, yeah, no, was interesting. We talked about lockdown with her. She's been stuck at home and, you know, she's such a –
0: home to her? Is she Malibu? Uh, or? D-Bar. Yeah. Oh, D-bar. Yeah. She's not over the Gold Coast yet after all the creeps that have been – Oh, she's over. Out. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking hell. She's pretty ready, pretty ready to go somewhere, I think. So. Jesus, I'd be so rattled if some um, – I mean, I'd be flattered, at, you know, me personally, I'd be flattered <laughs> if someone – wanted to date me and was follow me all the way down to Cabaret from Brisbane. 60-year-old male stalker. No, <laughs> Why <laughs> <laughs> was just warm and it's tight. Who gives a fuck, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Uh, no, no, one more, we? One more. One more. Um, a, a throwback one
2: for me is I got the chance to interview Buttons and do a piece with him the year before he died. Um, I did this thing every year in Hawaii. When I went to Hawaii, I took it upon myself to go and – Find some old Hawaiian legend and just do a day with them and as part, part of my own own self development, I felt I needed to do that, and so I did that with him um, and caught up with him, and he dropped around to our place and I hung out for hung out for an afternoon, surfed out the front and it was just it was just a gem it was like um, you know because i 'd grown up probably like you guys like with many classic moments and all those watching those films in town halls and and stuff, and he was just this electric character. Um, and then suddenly he was there on the back porch and we were just hanging out. And, but he was, like, he was super candid. Like, he'd had a really rough trot, um, you know, with drugs, and he'd gone down that whole road and, and come back and, and was just such a, you know, just such a beautiful spirit. He was just there. And then, and then he died the year after. So I just felt, I mean, I was just so glad that I went and did that and, um, yeah. It was, he was one of the best.
0: It's pretty extraordinary. Um, very, very sad, the amount of uh, Hawaiians who have um, disappeared in the last few years. Huh?
2: Oh, mm. right. A real gut punch. It's, yeah, what a, yeah, what a, yeah. It's been a, it's been a, pretty, um, been a pretty heavy week, absolutely. Um, that's not, not the news you want to wake up to Monday morning
0: here in Australia. That was, that was shit news. Did you start to start getting texts from people? So asking what you'd heard and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I got a, I got a call like seven o'clock that
2: morning. It happened overnight, and and then um, yeah, and I think everyone was um, kind of yeah. I, I didn't. I kind of had an idea of what had happened. Like you didn't need to know to know. Um, yeah, Schmuel had carried like because he'd lost his wife. But yeah, the sunny thing was was I think really the thing he carried that so heavily for so long. Um, so it wasn't yeah wasn't
0: hugely surprising, but just fucking heartbreaking, you know mm. and i guess I guess Sonny wasn't a uh, complete surprise really huh
2: no, no it's and but Shmoo was the same Shmoo was like really was pretty open about the fact he'd struggled with a lot of stuff um in particularly in the past twelve months, um and he'd done a fair, he'd done a lot of stuff to to try and help other crew as well. Um, but, yeah, no, nah, man, it got got him in the end, which is just just horrible. What was your final um, – what was the last time you saw Shmoo? Uh, when did I – well, I haven't, I haven't been able to get out of Victoria all year, so I haven't seen him all year. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably talked to him about six months ago and just – we actually, I've, I've interviewed him. I did interview him for this new book as well, um, and I went back and had a look at that the other day and – and then you, it kind of made sense because Shmoo had a period, he, when he dropped off tour, he really, he hit it hard. Um, he, had like, he, had a, he had a Coke habit. He was drinking a lot and, you know, wasn't surfing. This was when he was living in California at, at Sonny Miller's place. And then, um, and of course, the, the guy that got him out of it, of course, was Sonny. Sonny mm. just turned up one day and kicked his ass and said, Shmoo, you're coming back to Hawaii and, mate, we're training. And he whipped Shmoo into shape and Shmoo was back on tour the next year and, and they made that Bells final. But um so and Shmoo always could, you know, he goes, Man, without without Lisa and without Sonny, like he doesn't know where he would have would have been. And so I think to lose both of those both of those crew in, you know, in a few months, man, you can only imagine like him having to carry that around. So yeah, it's a tough one,
0: boys. What's it like as a writer knowing that you're going to have to write these obits because you've interviewed pretty much everybody? So when someone dies, you go let's call Shano for an obit.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. I was I was glad I got the, you know, I won't say glad, but at least I knew that at least. And but Shmoos one of those characters. A lot of people could have got have come out in the days since, and you've got all these beautiful words about him because that's who he was. You know, super open, really like magnetic. You know, good heart and but it, yeah it was it was tough to write on monday because it was you know i, I worked with him because we'd done commentary for like a decade on all sorts of events all over the years when he was a quick and and then he was off doing his own stuff and, and so we've worked yeah worked together for a decade so it's just like man it's like fucking it was pretty tough
0: for sure all right shano well uh, it's been lovely to chat man so yeah, we ended, ended on a bit of a
2: bum
0: note, there, boys. Yeah, what can we what can we end? end with a um, with a high note? Jazz, what can give us through a um, delightful question at uh, Seano that that brings us into a happy space.
1: Uh, Sean Doherty, what are you drinking in your thermos? Tell oh, me it's so. <laughs> not. Thank you. That's <laughs> that's the happy note right right there.
0: <laughs> what's um, what's Fish's uh, new drink? Hot fizz or something?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. We're going hard seltzer. We're having a hard seltzer summer.
1: I've really, I really tried to pitch Derek early days on a beach cred hard seltzer. Oh, Ultra, that, uh, ultra yes. hard surf seltzer?
2: That ship might have sailed, boys. I think that's only got one summer in it.
1: Huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. Jazz is getting yelled at. What are you getting yelled at for, Chaz? I'm getting yelled at to pitch out Talago hard seltzer from the wife, who somehow <laughs> has shares in Talago hard seltzer. Is it good to like a hard seltzer? Do you not have shares? Oh, I got busted for saying that too. Uh, yeah, it's good. Hard seltzer. Have you had a hard seltzer?
0: I've never had a hard seltzer. Sure.
1: Oh, Sean and Eric, neither of you are beer drinkers, clearly. Sean sure. sure, loves your beer. No. Yeah, I'm Look fine how one. he is right now. I mean, he's looking very fit. I know I Nobody's that fit who loves beer. Hard seltzer is the... Ana- <laughs> Which one? The wife's oh, still yelling. The, the rose. Was <laughs> they, you yelling are, they have a rose flavor. Oh, that's nice. It's lovely. It's the one that the gays apparently have claimed as their own. Is that the, the gay, gay one? Gays? Yeah. i can't say that. I, I'm not, I got busted. Bring in the gays. <laughs> in <Bring> the gays. They say it's safe space for the gays. <laughs> we can say the gays in her podcast still. It's okay here. They haven't come for us yet. First, they came for the someone else's. Oh, the wife just said the gays haven't come for us yet because we're all a lot of gays. We are. So, there's the happy note right there. We're all a bunch of gays, Sean. We're all overtly gay. And
0: it's beautiful. Did you ever see that um, Truman Capote um, front page? And it said, I am homosexual. I'm a drug fiend. I am blah, blah, blah. Never saw it. Oh, it's very, very good. If you just hang on a second, I think I can find the reference. Oh, yeah. I've been reading um, James Michener's um, The World. Oh, oh, yeah. it's the best. It's the best memoir ever.
1: And Derek, this... I just got into submission, too. Super late, but I'm there. I'm here with you. Oh,
0: how good is submission? Oh, my Fuck. goodness. And it's, and it's nothing like what everyone painted it out to be, huh? No, it's beautiful. Where's this fucking trim and capote thing? It's so fucking good writers that sorry sean i just tried to keep you man you got fucking two hundred fifty thousand words to write on something but um i've got fuck all to write so <laughs> <laughs> well fuck all that i'm gonna write Probably got, i actually have many to write yeah right hang on look in the index you guys ever read the world is my home no oh my god it's the best memoir ever I stopped at hawaii trios yeah oh is good it gave me nightmares though that damn thing you know the bit where the tidal wave came in? Came in. I stayed, oh, yeah, yeah. but I read it, and I had the and I had such a night terror. Um, I thought the tidal wave was going to come in. Okay, here we go. So um, I'm going to read you a little bit. One afternoon, as I was leaving Random House after reviewing the copy edited manuscript of one of my novels, I passed the newsstand in the lobby and stopped short with a gasp. There on the front page of a newspaper was a raffish picture of Truman Capote, leering from beneath the brim of the rakish Borsellino. Below were just four lines of type. I am a drunkard. I am a dope addict. I am a homosexual. I am a genius. Ah, Sean <laughs> Doherty. There you go. There you. go. everyone. Right. <laughs> been a pleasure, Sean. Hey? Thank you, mate. All the best, boys. All right. <laughs> you Good on.